Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you in February of 2022 with another edition of Questions for Corbett, specifically number 83 for those of you keeping track at home. And this month, we're going to be picking up on a question actually that was answered almost precisely one year ago. Uh, you will remember, hopefully, on February 12th, 2021, I posted Questions for Corbett number 73 on the question, What About Excess Mortality? Where not to toot my own horn, but it's probably the best damn overview of that question that you're going to get from a layman, uh, for a layman uh, audience, uh, looking at the statistics and what we know and what we don't know and how these statistics are calculated and the different variables that you have to take into account when looking at the question of excess mortality. It isn't just a simple question of counting the number of dead bodies. There's a lot of different things that go into that. So, um, having said that, I hope you will at the very least go and refresh yourself with that questions for Corbett if you haven't looked at it yet, uh, pr- particularly because towards the end, I think I try to drill down on the deeper philosophical question that's underpinning this whole question about excess mortality and what it means overall. But having said that, let's let's take a look at the end of that questions for Corbett. I did mention that, well, Ultimately, this is undecidable here in February of 2021 because a lot of the data uh, does not is not reported for weeks, if not months, sometimes up to a year after the event itself. So we cannot definitively say in February 2021 everything about the excess mortality data from 2020. We're going to have to revisit that question in the future. Well, I did get a question in um, not too long ago from Mike, who wrote, last year you said it would take a year to know how many deaths occurred in 2020 in comparison to 2019, etc. Can you post that information now or after the new year? Well, it is now after the new year. We're in 2022. And you probably don't want to hear my take on this, so let's bring on someone who has done the study of this. And it's a particularly relevant question at this particular moment because the Wall Street Journal, I noticed, just in the past couple of weeks had a big deep dive feature article with all of the flashy graphics at the front on one million deaths, the whole the pandemic made in U.S. society that begins two years into the COVID-19 pandemic. America's death toll is closing in, in on one million. Federal authorities estimate that 987,456 more people have died since early 2020 than would otherwise have been expected based on long-term trends. People killed by coronavirus infections account for the overwhelming majority of cases. Thousands more died from derivative causes like disruptions in their healthcare and a spike in overdoses. And I will, uh, I will obviously, I'll throw the link into the archived version of this article so that you do not uh, satisfy the Wall Street Journal with your click. But I do suggest that if you're interested in this topic, that you do read through this, at least to understand what the mainstream spin on these numbers is. But let's, let's go beyond that. This is the corporate report. We're not going to satisfy ourselves with the mainstream spin. So as I said, we're going to bring on someone who has done the deep dive, actual, real, by gosh, statistical analysis of these numbers, what they mean, and the data underlying them. Uh, that is Denis Doncourt, who you will absolutely remember, I am sure, from our previous conversations on the Corbett Report, although it has been several years now. So you might have to dig a little into the archives to refresh yourself. But of course, Denis Doncourt at denisdoncourt.ca, of course, linked up in the show notes if you have any problems with the spelling of that. Um, he, ha- he has written at, uh, several articles, actually, on this. Uh, Real Deal 
deep statistical dives on the uh, the question here. For example, uh, one from G- uh, August of last year, Canada, there was no COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Denis Doncourt posted up at Global Research. It's also on his site. Uh, and in November of last year, nature of the COVID-era public health disaster in the USA from all-cause mortality and socio-geoeconomic and climat- climatic data. Uh, with a couple of co-authors who he can mention by name, but let's bring him on directly. Danilo Ancourt, thank you very much for your time today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, James. I'm glad to be back. And uh, this is the topic that I can tell you about. I'll tell you, we've written several articles about this. The two co-authors that you mentioned are Jérémy Mercier and Marine Baudin. They're uh, both of French origin and from France, and uh, we really hit it off in terms of our... Uh, complementary abilities for analyzing this kind of data and uh, also our complementary backgrounds scientific backgrounds so we're we're a team now and we've uh, we're we're writing these papers together yes excellent well i'm glad that you are because uh, as people who follow the link and read these articles like good listeners will <laughs> will know this is i mean uh, this is real honest to god science there's a lot of deep statistical analysis going on here with a lot of uh, variables in play. Um, So I I wholeheartedly recommend this, but it is not for the faint of heart. You have to go through a lot of data to get to to really drill down on what's happening here. And it's I think it's worth your time because there are some pretty interesting conclusions that we can draw from this. But first of all, before we get into the particulars of what it is that you found, why did you write this? What prompted you to start looking at this data? And what what was sort of the overall conclusion that you came to with regards to, say, the U.S. versus Canada? Well, as soon as I heard about the pandemic and um, they were announcing it was a pandemic, um, my immediate thought was, well, here we go again with another another propaganda campaign, you know. And and as a scientist, the first thing I thought of was they're claiming this catastrophe. The real test is going to be how many people die. I mean, if it's a medical catastrophe, it's a pandemic, supposedly. Surely we can just look at how many people die and when they die and how old they are when they die and these kinds of things. So I went straight to the all-cause mortality data and I found that uh, Canada was not yet in the habit of putting up that data quickly. And so I I started with the United States and Europe and wrote a first paper that was uh, posted on ResearchGate the 2nd of June 2020. So right away. And I was able to show immediately that there was a large peak in the all-cause mortality, which occurred synchronously immediately after the pandemic was announced by the World Health Organization. But there was a large heterogeneity of that peak. So most places didn't have an excess mortality. And there were hot spots like Paris, New York, uh, Quebec is the province that was uh, the, the hot spot in Canada and nowhere else. So in the United States, for example, there are more than 30 states that didn't have a peak like this at all. But then New York was through the roof. So I, I concluded back then in that article that this could was completely inconsistent with a viral respiratory pandemic. It could not be that. And that it was all due to what the administrations were doing in those jurisdictions. So what the hospitals were doing and how they were treating the elderly and the reaction to the pandemic and how aggressively they were doing what they decided was a good thing, which was counter to the existing science at the time. And they basically killed many, many uh, frail and elderly people right away. You can see a huge peak in the all-cause mortality. In Canada, you actually see 
the the mortality for that age group come down below the norm after the peak. So it kind of it proves that they accelerated their deaths and then there were less deaths than normal following that. This is the uh, dry tinder effect that's well known in epidemiology. So that was the first thing I did was to demonstrate that this was happening. And I got a lot of mail from around the world saying, oh, my God, these peaks are synchronous. They're happening at the same time. And only in these hot spots. That's incredible. I didn't realize that, you know. And so that was the first thing I did. And uh, we just went from there. As more and more data was available, we decided we would try to figure this out and, and see uh, if there were extra deaths. All the same questions that your listeners were, were wondering about. And uh, yeah, since that time, we've studied the United States in detail. And the New York Times has it right. There are approximately, it's a very good number, a million extra deaths compared to the historic trend. But I don't but I don't agree that they were due to COVID-19. But there are definitely uh, many more deaths in the COVID period up till now uh, uh, than the historic trend. There's no doubt about that. However, the, the United States is unique in this regard. In Canada, there is statistically virtually no additional deaths in the entire COVID period when you integrate deaths. So you have to ask yourself, well, OK, if you're, you're saying COVID is this incredible virulent pathogen that killed a million people in the United States. How did it not cross the border into Canada, its biggest economic trading partner? How did that happen? You know, did, did, were Canadian doctors just so amazing that they prevented any deaths from occurring? Or, you know, what happened? Uh, so that, that we, we, we made fun of them in a sense that way. But one of the points of our article was this, this is not what's happening. This is, this is a crazy story, a crazy narrative. And um, so we, we actually were able to uncover what caused those deaths in the United States. And do um, you want to launch right into that and tell you the answer? Let's not launch right in. Let's keep people hanging for a moment to start defining some of the, the terms here and, and laying out what the, uh, the problem in this is. But it's not so straightforward as simply counting the number of dead bodies. But before we do so, I might suggest that the thing that stopped the virus was the uh, convoy, the Freedom Convoy. And here I am representing Canada with my Canada mug. So, hmm. Uh, sweet, sweet freedom. All right. Um, okay. Some some very interesting I things spoke, that you lay I out. I spoke to the uh, I spoke to the truckers this morning. I was I was there on Parliament Hill, and uh, it was just a wonderful atmosphere, a real party. And these people really know uh, that they want freedom and that this is all crazy. And uh, it, it was a wonderful atmosphere. So but didn't I, you I, feel I can, threatened by those Nazis with their bouncy council castles? I mean, it must have been so intimidating. <laughs> Anyway, let's not get diverted. Families, let's let's families, keep on topic. Okay, so children, beautiful people. Yeah. Let's talk about um first of all, all cause mortality is important to note because of course we're not talking specifically about um deaths that have been attributed to respiratory disease. We're talking about all cause deaths. So this is the thing that you can't hide or shove anything under a, a blanket here. Just the simple question of how many people died and is it more than what we would expect given the trend? And then, as I was talking about in that previous questions for Corbett, there's all the questions you have to add on to that. You can't just compare 1919 to 2020 because of the size of the population, for example. Of course, there's going to be more deaths in a bigger population, blah, blah, blah. There's so many different factors that you have to calculate for, but you can at least get a sense of an historical trend. Is this above the trend, below the trend, on trend? 
Um, and how do you go about doing that statistically, etc.? Let's start drilling down, first of all, on Canada. As I say, I'm going from the August 2021 article you published, Analysis of All-Cause Mortality by Week in Canada 2010 to 2021 by Province, Age, and Sex, colon, There was no COVID-19 pandemic, and there is strong evidence of response-caused deaths in the most elderly and in young males. And that starts, the abstract reads, we, we analyzed all-cause mortality by week for Canada and for the Canadian provinces and by age group and sex from January 2020 through March 2021 in comparison with data for other countries and their regions or counties. We found that there is no extraordinary surge in yearly or seasonal mortality in Canada, which can be ascribed to a COVID-19 pandemic and that several prominent features in the all-cause mortality by week in the COVID-19 period exhibit anomalous province-to-province heterogeneity that is irreconcilable with the known behavior of epidemics of viral respiratory diseases, we conclude that a pandemic did not occur. Wow, that's going to be news to, unfortunately, a lot of people in the audience, and especially a lot of Canadians. But all I've heard for the past two years is this horrible pandemic is killing so many people. Walk us through the Canadian data and what you found there. Well, I, I, you know, it's hard to do this without showing a graph. So I guess we, we, we've got to show the all-cause mortality versus time data at, at the very least. So I'm going to uh, consult my uh, PowerPoint here, and here we are. So I'm showing you slide 12, which is the all-cause mortality for Canada, so you can see that as a function of time, it's sloping up slightly, uh, uh, you know, as a historical trend because the population is increasing. A mother, uh, that's the main reason. And what you see, this is a typical graph, and you always see this with all-cause mortality versus time, whether it's by day, by week, by month. And that is that you have lows every summer, what we call the summer trough, and then these peaks that occur in the winter. So it's very seasonal in the in the northern hemisphere, mid-latitude countries. And the winter to winter, the, the peaks in the winter can be very different from winter to winter. They can be sharper, displaced a bit, and so on. But the summer troughs are always in the same place. And the summer trough, as a function of time, um, um, you know, increases monotonically there with population and also is changed by the age structure, the evolving age structure of the population. Whereas winter to winter, there's more differences. And so we tend to define the seasons uh, as going from summer to summer. And that's a natural way to analyze this kind of data. And what you see with the Canadian data is that there is a, a in, in, in the second last bump there, uh, that that sharpest peak of the second last winter bump, if you like, is what I what we've been calling the COVID peak. It's the peak that surged up just after the pandemic was announced on the 11th of March, uh, uh, 2020, and uh, then came all you know very quickly down. Now that peak is unusual because you never get a peak like this this late in the winter season, and it's not, and it and it wouldn't be that sharp and so on. So uh, and, and again, just just eyeballing it, uh, it, there's clearly a difference because there's there seems to be two spikes in the winter. Exactly, exactly. There's the there's a winter spike that's at about the right place, and then there's this huge peak. And the thing about that huge peak is that it's it's dramatically different from province to province, whereas every other feature in the past is essentially the same from province to province. It never changes. These features are synchronous, uh, and that's that's one of the that's the nature of this phenomenon. So the fact that you get a peak that's very different can only happen because locally something is happening that's very 
different. For example, if you get a heat wave in one province, like happened recently in BC, you get a very sharp mortality peak during that heat wave that killed people. Uh, if you get an earthquake in a place that really, you know, crushes all the buildings in, in a given town, a big town or city, you get a peak related to that and so on. But otherwise, uh, these seasonal variations are due to the interaction between humans and the various pathogens that attack them. And we're, sus we're more susceptible to many things in the winter when the air is very dry. And there are many reasons for that. And that includes both bacteria and viruses. And also heart attacks are much more prominent. Uh, the, that, that cause of death is also higher in the winter. Um, so uh, th th this, is how, this is how health varies, if you like. Mortality varies with time normally. And to have a peak that's just heterogeneous like this from jurisdiction, jurisdiction to jurisdiction is unheard of, unheard of. And it would never be this late in the season either. So those are clear indicators that we've got something really strange going on. Um, and then and then you've got the summer and then you've got a winter peak, uh, another winter peak that follows. So uh, and we have uh, more data now. And I can tell you that when we integrate uh, on a on a cycle year basis, and we look at the we look at the uh, values of that integration. I can show you the graph in uh, that would be uh, graph 14 in the PowerPoint. Um, you can see that um, you the points are the cycle year integrals as a function of time. And in 2020, they're they're right on the the trend. There is nothing different. And since then, we've gone a little further. We've gone into the next cycle year, and it's again, it's slightly above the trend, very slightly, nothing like in proportion to the population, the million deaths that they saw in the United States, okay? So that's what's going on there. There's not, nothing special has happened in terms of uh, deaths uh, overall. However, when you go province to province, there are some big differences. And I can show you, um, this is Ontario in slide 15. It looks a lot like Canada because it's the most populous province, but the peak is maybe not quite as high, that COVID peak just after the announcement. But then when you go to Quebec, which is slide 16, you see a much larger in proportion uh, COVID peak right after the announcement. And Quebec was particularly murderous uh, towards its elderly. And it came out recently in the Radio Can, which is the French CBC, that in fact, many doctors were complaining that the palliative care was almost, well, was in effect designed to kill elderly people in the hospitals at that time and had that effect. And so that just came out in the mainstream media. Um, and then if you look at you know, slide 17 is Alberta, and Alberta doesn't have any anomalous COVID peak whatsoever, but then in the following winter, it has a, a very large peak. And um, that very large peak is particularly important for young men if you look at the age structure, you find that young men were uh, dramatically affected. I've got a graph of that here. That would be slide 19. We've got the 0 to 44-year age group, uh, and you see a peak there in the COVID period. You see basically a flat line before you get to the COVID period, and then you get a rise in the mortality of young people from 0 to 44 years of age. And when you look at the gender, you realize that they're they're virtually all men, and so these I think this is the age group that you that that are in the convoy, not just the big uh, trucks, but you have all these people in cars and pickups who came up. A lot of them are young men in that age group that came from Alberta and BC and Ontario and everywhere, and they I mean if they're dying preferentially, that means they that this is a uh, a, a part of the population that has suffered. 
tremendously for for economic reasons and so on. So we concluded that uh, the COVID uh, measures um, created a, a lot of suffering for uh, targeted groups, and that includes young men. Okay, so that was our story for Canada. So when you integrate all of the um, all of the uh, deaths by cycle year, there's no anomaly and nothing like what you get in the United States. And that is true of most Western countries, uh, Western European countries. You do get uh, anomalies, uh, large increases in more the Eastern European countries where the measures would have had a bigger effect on particularly vulnerable populations. Okay, so that's the story for Canada. Um, there was no special killer that dramatically increased mortality All right. overall. Well, let me let me push back then. Let me p- play devil's yeah. advocate because I don't think it's convincing to say that the zero to forty-four year old spike um, in all-cause mortality would have been due to economic restraint um, uh, necessarily. I don't think there were people dying, right. ha- starving on the streets. Uh, there has to be something else, f- presumably physiologically, that is accounting for that spike. Well, okay, let's get into that. Um, The first thing you have to admit is that viral respiratory diseases do not kill zero to 44 year olds. They just don't ever. Okay. You, in fact, you don't, most people never die of a viral respiratory disease. You need to have co-infection with pneumonia or be particularly frail or have comorbidity conditions. And it goes, it, it, the, the uh, mortality from this, uh, rises exponentially with age and it's real when i say exponentially i say it as a physicist i really mean it's an exponential and uh with with a doubling time of about nine or ten years and uh so it's about it's a it's it's about frailty at the end of your life when uh you know when your immune system is having a, a much harder time you don't have as many physiological resources to fight infection or any assault on you so viral respiratory diseases cannot explain if if there's a lot of children or young people that die all right well on the on the question then of frailty um, can yeah. you capture in this data the question of comorbidities how many comorbidities were present in the people dying here Right. No, you can't. You you can't unless you get that information elsewhere. Because if you if you're confining yourself to all cause mortality, then you're not looking at that, right? But in the U.S., we do have good data on the uh, comorbidity conditions, actually. And so when, when I get into the U.S., we'll be able to really clarify this. In fact, a lot of my conclusions or interpretations or hypotheses about Canada are inspired, are, are, are based on what I know about the U.S., okay? All right, well, and the US let me, before East we move on to the yeah. U.S., then, let me bring up the other question about Canada, because the other thing that would occur to me as potentially causing a spike in mortality for younger people during the supposedly viral respiratory pandemic would be, has anything else changed in the baseline of the, uh, the people affected? And the question would be, uh, is... Uh, does that data that we're the spike that we're seeing, which was presumably the winter 2021 spike moving into 2021? Uh, it's broader than that. Yeah. Okay. So, in, in so Canada, define what I'm looking, for example, I'm looking at specifically at slide 19 right now. So I'm seeing that giant spike in zero to 44 year age group in these winter 2021 season, or is it summer, winter 2021? Yeah. Summer, winter. 
Uh, actually, sorry, 2020, moving into 21. So this is before... That's right. This is before the uh, the injection campaign started in Canada. Yes, yes Okay, it is. so that's not... That cannot be related to this. It's not about vaccines, no. Okay. No, that's right. And, um, you know, it's not a lot of deaths. If you look at the slide, it's how many deaths per week there on the graph. I can't see it quite well, but it's, you know, it's uh, 10, 20, 30, 50 deaths per week extra. It's very significant statistically, but you're trying to understand a fairly small amount of deaths over the population in this age group, right? So you're, I, I'm thinking, if I had to propose things for this age group, I'm thinking uh, incredible loss of jobs, more isolation, less opportunity to have the usual social contacts that you have, less public spaces available for you to have those social contacts, all these kinds of things. And I'm thinking suicide, drug overdoses, crime, uh, um, all these kinds of factors that, that classically can affect young men. Exactly. Uh, yeah. uh, that's, that's where my mind yeah, is going, which yeah. is, would suggest that all-cause mortality would not be should not be the only way that we're viewing this data. We should be comparing it to, for example, is there a large spike yes. in suicide amongst that age group? The problem is it's very difficult to get good data in those other causes. Very difficult. And there's not a national system to collect them or a province-wide really good system to collect them and be sure of them and so on. And you're working on a background of of suicides and so on. And you're trying to identify what was a suicide and what was an accidental death. A lot of these get classified as accidental deaths. So you decide to drink and drive, I don't know, all kinds of things. And or you decide to kill yourself one way or another, but it, it, it looks like an accidental death and gets counted there and so on. So it's it's hard to unravel this. Um, and that's that's really a different. You see, what we do is we say we know the all cause mortality is hard data. I know I've got a bump there. I know it's real. Now, another team of researchers can tell me why that's happening. You know, I, I, I'll if, if there's good data, I'll look at it and I'll try to say something about it. But yeah, usually there isn't good data for these causes of death, especially for small numbers of deaths and particular age groups and in a particular jurisdiction. It, it gets very difficult. Uh, the other, I think the other consideration then, when we're looking specifically at the question of the heterogeneity of the data f from province to province, I think the people who are supporting the official story here would say that that's because of the restrictions on travel and movement that were placed uh, it, as the sort of firewalls between provinces and what have you, you that certainly limited the the travel and thus limited the spread of this viral respiratory disease, right? Yeah, there's no there's no evidence in the data whatsoever that there's any spread of anything. You know, you'd expect that when you see a large peak in mortality, that it starts in the east or wherever it started, and that it gradually moves. You'd expect to see that across Europe, across France, county to county. We've looked, we've looked for any evidence of a spread or transmission in this kind of data, and there is none. Absolutely none can be detected. What you find instead are jurisdiction to jurisdiction heterogeneities uh, that are massively different. So, you, you, you know, um, you, you know, pe people can always tr put forward. You, 
I can, I can, I can say, listen, I think this is happening, and someone else can say, oh, there are no deaths in Canada. Well, Canadians are really good at wearing their masks, <laughs> exactly, and Canadians were really good at social distancing, and Canadians were, you know, yeah, I, I, I can't. Uh, disprove those kinds of things. All I can say is I've studied face masks and all the science, uh, all the randomized controls trials that are done that are proper uh, science, all find that there is no detectable advantage to wearing a mask, okay? All the studies that tried to see transmission of the virus outside uh, have found that they cannot detect transmission of a viral respiratory disease when you're outside and so on. You know, all I can do is quote the science. And uh, so not the right science, are, though, uh, to, to actually, yeah, to cut to the chase, I think we are going to lead in that direction of exactly what we're talking about. You can look at the exact same data and come to exactly opposite conclusions based on that, which is a point that I've made in the past and will continue to make. This is about interpretation of data, which has to do with underlying assumptions. And uh, there are certain things that you can absolutely disprove based on data and some things that you can act absolutely unequivocally state based on the data. But what does that mean? What is the underlying meaning of that? Well, everyone was wearing their mask. As you say, There's a, a, there are a lot of different ways right. that people will put spins on things. But right. before but James, we get... To, 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 be fair, to be fair, James, in, in our paper on Canada, we, we put it this way. We said, look, yeah, you can make those arguments. But here's the thing. We get exactly the mortality of the historic trend. Now, if, you know, we, we don't get less and we don't get any more. We get exactly what you'd expect from the historic trend. So are you saying that this happened by accident, that you had this incredibly virulent pathogen and you did these special things and you ended up with exactly the same result? So we use uh, Occam's razor, which is this, this way to judge things in, in science, which is, uh, you know, incredible coincidences and where you have to wave your hands a lot to get the result are probably not the right explanation. It's not, at least it's not the preferred one. Uh, it would be it's 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 easier to say I see no evidence here of of our respiratory disease causing extra deaths. No matter where I look, I see where I do see extra deaths. I can understand that you did some pretty vicious things, and in fact, a lot of that's been documented in army reports and everything. So I prefer those explanations, you know. And so it's a question of preference based Absolutely. on those kinds of principles. That's and I right. know That's that the right. nature of these types of interviews is actually to do a type of violence to the actual work that you've done by making the listener believe that they have heard this conversation so they know what it is, what you're talking about. They don't have to read your article. Uh, uh, quite the contrary. I take anyone who wants to comment on this conversation who has not actually read your articles, I do not take their commentary seriously because you are not commenting on the actual, what we are actually talking about. Uh, read the articles for yourselves so you can actually appreciate the depth of this argument. And I think people will come to a better appreciation of what it is we're talking about at all. Let's, so let's drill down on uh, that. But be be before. Before we move on, though, James, I want to correct something. Slide 19 is actually for the age group of 0 to 44 years old, but it's for all of Canada. Ah, not uh, But we looked at the provinces separately, and you can definitely see this broader peak for young men in, in Alberta, okay? And you can kind of detect it in BC. And surprisingly, young men in Quebec did not have a death anomaly in this way. So there are big cultural differences there. Mm. So why were young men in Quebec not killed during the COVID period, 
whereas young men in Alberta suffer dramatically. And I they think they were better mask wearers. As I say, that's, that so is anyway, an, that, inevitably that's how, what some will reply. But uh, again, yeah. read the articles. But let's, so, okay, let's get to that U.S. data, which, as you say, we can g- drill down more on some of the comorbidities and other things that are involved here. Yes. Okay. So um, maybe slide 23 would be the best to start with. That is all-cause mortality by year. So you integrate over a year and you go from 1900 to 2020 and see the full historic picture. And what you see there is a huge peak at 1918, which is supposedly uh, the Spanish flu. But in fact, there's several scientific articles that show that everyone who died, everyone we know about where we have microscopic slides preserved that you can actually look at what their lungs looked like and this kind of thing, every one of them died with a massive bacterial lung infection, okay? So the thing that that was a killer here was uh, bacterial lung infections, pneumonia in other words, and this was at a period before the invention of antibiotics. So there were no antibiotics present. It was right after a major war. The uh, health and living and public public health conditions were horrendous, especially for laborers. Uh, And it's young, again, young men and young people and children in those families that died. So it's not a signature. It's the opposite of a signature of deaths from a viral respiratory disease. And I have concluded that that was that peak of 1918 was co-opted as being a flu pandemic later. But in fact, it was a a bacteria. It was mostly predominantly deaths due to bacterial pneumonia and uh, without antibiotics under incredibly stressed conditions. And that's how you'd explain 1918. Now, if you, if you look at the, the rest of it, and you can look at this by age group, you can do it many different ways, um, you will not find any evidence of the CDC proposed major viral respiratory pandemics. There's supposed to be one in 1957-58, uh, which is this H2N2 thing, 1968 H3N2, 2009 didn't have a lot of deaths, but still enough. According, if you if you believe the CDC on deaths in the United States, you should definitely see it in this data. You don't see it. So what I and and you can look at slide 24, which is to look at um, uh, the two sexes and the age group 15 to 24, for example. So anytime you see bumps, it's related to the Great Depression, to the Dust Bowl, to the Second World War. To uh, you can see kind of a shoulder and an uprise for men only during the Vietnam War. These are the kinds of things that cause death that you can actually detect in all-cause mortality, not pandemics. There's no sign of any pandemics anywhere. I've looked for them extensively. Okay, so I have concluded that this whole flu pandemic thing is a propaganda campaign. It is an industry, and they are setting us up to do what they did, which was COVID-19, and to sell flu vaccines uh, in the United States, which is a huge industry. Now, now to be fair, let's underline that slide we're looking at, slide 24, is for 15 to 24-year age group. I'm sure it does look different for the, say, 70-plus year age group. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And we showed a lot, I think we showed 
virtually all the age groups in the paper itself. Okay, but that, those, those are the ones I pulled out there. And so, yes, the, because those are the ages that would have suffered from the wars. Um, but uh, when you look at the Great Depression and so on, you you see definitely more that you see young men up to, you know, in the 40s and 50s that are, that are dying. Um, so that's right. Um, and so that's the first thing when you look at on a by year basis historically. Um, then if you hone into looking at all-cause mortality in the United States during the COVID period, I'm going to slide 25 now, and now we see the usual, okay, now what I've done is I've, I've, um, I've removed the uh, l linearly ex in, in interpolated uh, summer troughs trend, and so I get a zero now and I get a flat horizontal line, just, just to be able to look at it more easily. Uh, so that's not a big uh, transformation of the data. And I've used different colors for the different uh, cycle years. And so you can see the years before the COVID period. Then you can see uh, the huge first peak there, which is the COVID peak in the United States. Then you see something that is unheard of. You see before between two cycle years there in the summer, a large peak. James, that has never occurred before. You don't get a peak in all-cause mortality in the summer. It, 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 we've been collecting epidemiological data in the Western countries since 1900. This has never happened before. Okay. Now you're going to tell me, oh, yes, but it's COVID. It's SARS. Uh, <laughs> it's a special virus. The genetic code is such that you get a peak in the summer. Well, I don't think so. But, and, then you f and then you follow that with a huge winter peak and the, the initial thrust that all happens before the vaccination campaign started. Okay. And then it's coming down as you're vaccinating people, but it's the it's the seasonal uh, drop as you're vaccinating people. Then you get a summer trough, which does not come down to the historic trend of summer troughs. Then you get another summer peak the following year, uh, which is happening mostly after the vaccination campaign. So that's the story in terms of looking at the data. But what we see now is if you if you now integrate year by year and look at uh, the results, you will get a million de extra deaths uh, compared to the historic trend. OK, but but what we're going to do now first is look at slide 26, where I've defined the different regions in that all cause mortality curve. So Cove Cove one is that COVID peak that happens right after the pandemic is announced. Then you get this weird summer peak, huge winter peak, and then later you get a, a, a summer peak too, which is late in the summer. And so we're going to analyze those things. And what we find is that um, f from, uh, from state to state, these patterns are dramatically different from state to state. You, whereas the patterns before the COVID period are always the same, okay? And when I say always the same, you can look at slide 29. This is what the patterns look like, the seasonal patterns of mortality in a bunch of states all put on the same graph before the COVID period hit. They're always the same and they're synchronous. And you can cross the entire uh, country from east to west. They're synchronous. OK, that's what you normally get. Um, and whereas slide 28 shows you that as soon as you hit the COVID period, the peaks are all over the place. This is just a selection of states there, uh, California, Florida, Michigan, Nevada, New York, and South Dakota. But the, you, you can look at any collection, you get all these peaks, and you see how the different states have different peaks in different places and different relative magnitudes. 
And so the map in 27, slide 27, shows uh, using a color coding system, different codes for different, uh, if you like, types of patterns. You know, is, is the first peak the strongest, the second peak, and so on. It shows how it's just, just a scatter, not complete scatter, not completely random, but there's a scatter of many, of very different mortality patterns from state to state. Okay? So that was the first look to just just look at the data, just see what's going on here. Um, then what you find, if you look at that first summer peak, where do the deaths occur? And that's slide 30. The deaths occurred in states that have high poverty, high obesity, and are southern states that are hot states, such as Arizona and so on, uh, cl climatic heat. So you've got this really hot summer, uh, not not hotter than usual. They're always hot. The summers are always hot in the southern United States. And you've got uh, uh, the, the deaths are all occurring there. Now, that summer peak is correlated with the following winter's peak, which is correlated with the following summer's peak. So all together, they, they, they behave this way. And it's always the poor, the states where there's poverty, obesity, and the southern states that are taking up virtually all of the extra deaths. Okay. So if I was a headline writer, headline, yeah. Canadian and French research team discover man-made global warming is behind the excess mortality. <laughs> and that's even further, further given credence in this article by uh, where you say th there are sharp peaks a single week or so in the uh, all-cause mortality per week data for Oregon and Washington occurring at week 26 of 2021. The increased deaths co coincide with an extraordinary weather event. The two states and British Columbia, Canada, experienced a short but record-breaking summer heat wave, which, of course, in the mainstream media has been attributed to man-made global warming. I did cover that in my fake news awards this year, that uh, yes. it was not uh, a global warming event, but at any rate. That's a separate phenomenon from the one I'm showing in this map of, of slide 30, obviously. That was a very narrow peak lasting just days uh, and of only hundreds of deaths, right, uh, for those for those particular places that experienced that heat wave. That's right. Um, but um, no, what they would say, James, when they look at this particular map of death, they would say, uh, they would say, oh well, uh, you know, the, the this is such an unusual virus. Its uh, its genetic code is such that it's only killing uh, poor people who also happen to be obese and who live in the southern states. That's what they would say, right? Well, to I be mean, fair, what they would really say is this is reflective yeah. of the different legislative uh, routes that different places have taken. And they will point to places like Florida and Texas as being the, they, these people didn't lock down enough. They didn't mask comply enough. I think they would look at the legislative differences between yeah, states. Yeah, that, that we've looked at and, and it doesn't work. There are seven states that did not lock down at all. Uh, versus all the others that were had different degrees of ag aggressiveness of lockdown. And uh, you can compare them when they're neighboring states. You get pairs of comparing states. And you can do the full comparison, and you'll find that, in fact, the states that uh, had lockdowns had much higher deaths in proportion to their population than the non-lockdown states. And this is systematic. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm privileged enough to see the data of a Harvard professor who's doing this analysis these days. It's unpublished right now, but it clearly, it clearly shows that uh, what you just said is, in fact, the opposite is true, right? Now, uh, what's interesting, though, is uh, slide number 31 shows um, a correlation that we found. So we take on the x-axis, it's the product of the uh, obesity degree per state times the poverty per state 
these these parameters are defined in the article and on the y-axis you've got the uh, summer excess mortality by population for the state and you see that you find this very strong correlation and in fact if you go low enough in the product of obesity and poverty you get no excess mortality at all okay so that's that's a, a, a striking feature that we want to try to understand and propose what might be happening here and so then we go but we, we at slide 32 we start looking uh, James at your idea of let's look at the underlying causes of death and so here we've got in green there we've got pneumonia deaths as a function of time and so we see that it's fairly flat line and then it, get, it starts to have large peaks in the COVID period. Uh, we've got what they attribute to COVID-19 in, in red and we've got yellow which you can barely see which is influenza which uh, basically they're, they're not seeing much of it during the COVID period. And the black is the sum of, not the sum of, but it's, it's deaths that are due to what they call PIC. So it's, it's, it's any combination of those uh, respiratory diseases, whether, it's, uh, whether they're calling it COVID, influenza, or bacterial pneumonia, any combination is the black line. And you can see that the black line models the excess deaths that you see in the all-cause mortality very, very well. In fact, we, we, we did a bunch of things in the article that showed that it's, it's, it's pretty much a perfect match. Okay, so in other words, everyone, all of the extra deaths are from respiratory diseases. Whether you want to call it, whether you want to believe that there was a special virus as opposed to the hundreds of usual viral respiratory diseases that are always with us and, and call it uh, the COVID-19 virus or however you want to call it, these deaths were respiratory disease deaths. Uh, I think we have to conclude that. Um, now, these, here, here's where it gets interesting. Oh, the, the other thing, you don't hear in the media that about 50 to 60 percent of the things that were called COVID-19 actually were co-infection with pneumonia. You see how there's a lot of green there and uh, in proportion to the red? So th there was an epidemic of uh, co-infecting pneumonia. And guess what? It was not treated. They stopped prescribing antibiotics. At the same time, in the COVID period, you can look at, we put it in our paper, we've got the prescriptions of antibiotics and it drops by half at the same time that you have a huge epidemic of bacterial pneumonia, which is a known killer. Unlike viral respiratory diseases, you stop prescribing antibiotics. So I think you can guess what I'm going to say the mechanism of those deaths is, right? It's the, These are pneumonia deaths. And also... The, the amount of pneumonia that they're uh, counting here, um, they're not all from tests of uh, taking a swab and seeing if there's actual bacteria in, in, in the tissues. No, Th this is based on symptoms. This is based on uh, clinical examinations or guesswork and so on. So I think a lot of what was called COVID, they didn't bother to say that it looks like there might be a co-infection of bacteria there as well, you see. Uh, but... but um, Despite that, you have 60% of the so-called COVID that are bacterial cases as well. And bacterial pneumonia is a much bigger killer than in all age groups than is uh, COVID, uh, than is a viral respiratory disease. So let's try to understand it in, in the light of what I just said here. And we look at uh, slide number 33, 
And that is a slide. Slide number 33 is uh, antibiotic prescription rates normally before COVID state by state. And you can see that the poor southern states, generally speaking, um, um, have a lot of prescriptions of antibiotics. In other words, this is a population that suffers from uh, bacterial pneumonia a lot, and that is a limiting factor of their life expectancy. Because if you do a map of life expectancy, you get those southern states again where you have poverty and obesity. Okay, so this is this is a place where bacteria are present and are a pathogen that is very dangerous to this particular population. But the question is, why are there more uh, pneumonia infections now than there normally was in this group, in this group that is susceptible to exactly that kind of infection? And our answer to that is that um, we believe that the pandemic conditions that were imposed uh, were highly stressful and created uh, social isolation and wrecked the lives of people in terms of their habits, their ways of socializing, the work they had, the part-time work they had, the, the uh, non-taxed work that they would have had, all these things and the way that they, all the public places where they would normally meet, all the places where they would go into air-conditioned spots to get away from the heat, all, everything is closed. So the, there would have been this societal attack on precisely those people. And I think that the stress and the social isolation from that made them more susceptible to bacterial infection. And I believe that that is what killed a million people in the United States. Let, let's, under, uh, let's stop for a moment. Let's underline yeah, that point. Yeah. This is such an important point because what we're talking about when we start talking about legislative attempts to interfere in people's everyday lives in order to combat this spread of supposed spread of the supposed respiratory viral pandemic is not just affecting one or two, it's affecting hundreds of thousands of variables that you can't even possibly begin imagining trying to control when looking at how does this affect such things as all-cause mortality, let alone everything else to do with people's lives. It is profound, dramatic changes that everyone, I am sure, who is listening to this conversation can see from their own personal experience. This has changed so many different things about your daily life and your daily routines. How can you possibly expect that given that monumental disruption in all these different variables that then we can point, oh, okay, well, the deaths then clearly are because of this disease. It, I, I think it's yes, just an important but, but, point. But, but we, have to add, we have to add one important element to what you're describing, and that is this. It is as established as something can be in science that the main determining factor related to whether you're going to have disease and whether you're going to die is how much chronic stress you're subjected to and experience in your life. That's the first factor. And the second factor is social isolation. And this, these are not small factors. This is absolutely the most important thing in terms of how long you're going to live and, and whether you'll die of disease and how often you'll be sick. Okay. And this is because in all uh, social animals, we know now that there are dominance hierarchies that establish themselves and that the, the uh, dominant individuals constantly oppress the, the subordinates. And that oppression can, be, can constitute a source of chronic stress. And that is what keeps the subordinates uh, more sickly, uh, less strong, 
and they die sooner and don't live as long. And this is true in all social animals, okay, including humans. So um, this just goes to show you the importance of stress in terms of health. And um, this is uh, known but not considered enough. When, when they do public health, they, it's almost like this incredible thing that's been discovered by science. And, and also the effect of stress, the physiological effect of stress on the immune system is now known to be 10 and more times greater in elderly people than in younger people. So this is, this is, how, you, this is how you kill people. Uh, they just did an experiment that demonstrates that with uh, uh, government-imposed measures, you can kill a large number of people and who you will kill and by what mechanism you will kill them. And I think that our paper on the United States is a landmark study that illustrates these mechanisms and really shows this phenomenon in some detail. Agreed. Yep. So that's what I think is is um, the nature, the true nature of COVID in the United States. Now, the United States is a special place for studying COVID because you've got 50 states, so 50 different jurisdictions. Uh, so when you make a graph looking for correlations, you've got 50 points on the graph. And it's special because there are uh, great heterogeneities in the population, right? Poor people, wealthy people living in all kinds of different environments. And it's a place where there were an enormous, a large amount of extra deaths during COVID. So it's very easy to study COVID and the epidemiology of so-called COVID in the United States. And that's why we were able to uh, explain basically what's going on here. Now, there's, a, there's some really neat graphs that I want to show you that are not published yet, but um, I'm giving you the scoop here. Um, I'm looking at slide 35. I just want to show you the kinds of things we're doing these days. Um, slide 35 is uh, all-cause mortality for the United States. Uh, the color coding is for the cycle years. Or no, it's not the cycle years. This is a little different. So the color coding we've applied here is, in purple there, is the entire COVID period that we have. Then the next color is the same duration in time, but the next uh, period down. And then the next period down, the next. So it's divided into periods of equal length as the COVID period that we have there. And then we integrate the total deaths in the COVID period, in the next period, in the next, next period, and so on. And we make a graph of that. You can see the black points there are the values of the total deaths in the COVID period compared to the other periods. You see that? So as, as a result, you can you can see how what the trend is like and this stepwise increase in the COVID period, okay? Now that's a, a nice way to illustrate what happened there. So that's, that's a million deaths right there. From, from, that, from, the, from the last two periods, which are uh, flat there to up to the COVID period, that's a million deaths. And you know, now, sorry, I, I, yeah, this yeah. may be tangential, but act, uh, of course the, uh, the, the step into the COVID period is quite obvious. But the other one that really kind of stands out to me is between 2015 and the next step over, there's clearly an upward increment there, and then oh, a yeah. flat line, and then up. Oh, oh yeah. Well, and, and there's some noise there, too. You can see some noise. So the flat line may not be completely flat, because you can, you can get a sense for the level of noise in, in, in the trend, right, uh, by looking at point to point. Um, now, there, of course, there are increases there, and the increases in this kind of data are typically due to 
the population itself is increasing. That's the first thing. So so you have more deaths in a bigger population, obviously. So right? this is not population but adjusted. Then. This one's not. No, this is the raw data. And also, uh, it doesn't need to be because it's for one jurisdiction, the United States, yeah, right? right? So you can you, you you have to adjust. If you want to compare state to state, then you have to adjust per population of each state. But if you're just looking at the data, um, uh, you can leave that. You you can you can uh, think of the trend as being due to population increase. Um, but but the other thing too is that the age structure of that population is changing as you advance in time, as 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 the baby boomers age, there are more and more elderly people. That's another factor. And the other factor are social economic factors. So, um, you know, there, there, there was a huge uh, economic crash around 2010, 2009, around there. And you, it, it coincides with a change in slope there. And that change in slope, uh, from our calculations, can only be attributed to the aging population. Only half of it can be attributed, roughly, roughly half. Those are the kinds of considerations to to understand the trend normally when you look at a graph like this. Uh, and uh, econ big economic changes can also contribute to a change in slope and so on. But the stepwise increase in the COVID period that's unmistakable. That you know that's huge, and it has to be due to what was occurring during that period. Now, what's interesting though, James, is that you can now do this exact same visualization, but by age group. Okay, so I've got a bunch of graphs to show you if you want to see them. I've got, uh, for example, slide 36 um, that is for the less than 15-year-old age group. And you see that, you know, for some reason there was a plateau and then it started dropping, it's dropping. Again, you have to think in terms of how many people of that age are in the population, how is that changing, what's happening to these children, and so on. But COVID is not... Is, is just on the trend for that age group, you see. Uh, I can go to the next age group and look at uh, 15 to 24-year-olds, and now I see definitely a step in the COVID period. From whatever complicated behavior was happening before, I think there's a real step there for the COVID period, even in that young age group, 15 to 24-year-olds. And I can continue doing this kind of uh, thing for the other age groups. Um, um, I think this is the next one. 25 to 34 year olds you can see it again big step in the covid period like you, you have to you have to understand viral respiratory diseases cannot do this they don't do this and to be uh, to be clear there's never been this pattern observable in previous vi what have been identified as viral respiratory pandemics is that correct that's right well to be clear uh the 1918 uh epidemic of what I would call bacterial pneumonia uh, killed a lot of young people, uh, men and women, young adults, children, killed everybody. I mean, it was it was horrendous. Um, but I, I do not agree that that can be tagged as a viral respiratory disease pandemic, okay? Every other major pandemic, you don't see anything like this. In fact, you can't see anything because you can't detect extra deaths from them, okay, in the all-cause mortality. So you can talk about any pandemic, 1957, 1968, 2009, you don't see anything like this because you can't even see extra deaths. So in other words, what happened in the United States is that they recreated the conditions for a deadly bacterial pneumonia epidemic 
and they stopped prescribing antibiotics. So they recreated the conditions in 1918 before antibiotics were invented. That is what happened in, in the COVID period. They recreated the conditions of 1918. There you go. And, and we can continue. I don't, uh, we can continue it to other age groups. Um, um, I, I can't stop now. As slide 40 is the uh, 45 to 54-year age group. You see that big step again in, in the COVID period. And then as you go to the uh, 55 to 64, you definitely see a step there again. And what is surprising is that the steps are not as dramatic as you get to older people. 85 plus, mm, you know, it's, it's not so noticeable. So that's, that's the story in terms of looking at the data that way. Uh, it's kind of like the opposite of what you expect from a viral respiratory disease. The, the elderly people are barely, are barely affected in comparison to the historic trend uh, overall in the COVID period, whereas the young age groups are dramatically affected. Fascinating. There are so many gigantic questions, juicy red meat questions that scientists, you would think, would be very interested in taking a look at. Because clearly there are some very interesting things that you are pointing out in this data. But for some reason, we get the Wall Street Journal telling us that the whole the pandemic made in U.S. society is this one million deaths. And of course, they mean it in the sense it was the disease. It was not it was not the legislative and other things, steps that were taken and all of these other factors. No, it was this disease. And therefore, you know, this is this justifies this and that and that and the other. I think ultimately, OK, first of all, thank you for putting up with my devil's advocacy. I <laughs> I know you oh, get this, no, but I, for the heart I, of I thinking at home, I am trying to draw out obvious the obvious things the mainstream would try to say about what you are doing here. But as I say, I do not take the comments, questions, complaints, criticisms of people who have not read your articles seriously, because there is so much data that you have provided in these articles that, as I say, any scientist worth their salt should be interested in the questions you have raised here. And I think one of the things we're gesturing at here today is that the question of simply just give me the numbers, how many people died? Oh, okay, then there was a pandemic. It is not that simple. There are different stories to be told based on different ways of reading the data and different aspects of the data that you're looking at. Are you looking at all-cause mortality or are you looking at differentiated by state and, uh, you know, age group and uh, well, comorbidities, etc.? By, by, et by, by analysis by time, all-cause mortality by time is the first level of uh, detail that really gives you the most information. You know, if I only had one more parameter to look at, it would be by time. I'd want to see it by week. I'd want to know in terms of when you did things, what, what happened, right? The next big things as well, and by gender. Um, but you know, I, I want to I make a point here, which is the following. Um, scientists who are on our side, a lot of them are virologists, and they will not look at all-cause mortality data. They, they, they cannot grasp it or they don't want to see it. They don't want to make arguments on the basis of this hard data. They want to stick to their understanding of the uh, molecular mechanisms of disease and what must be going on and be critical from that perspective. So I've been a little bit upset at scientists for not having a more interdisciplinary view of things and not admitting that the very first level of reality is, did someone die? And how many people died? And where did they die? And when did they die? And how old were they? And what, you know, 
let's do that first. And when you do that, you find that, for example, in Canada, there was no pandemic. In most European countries, Western European countries, there's no extra. Whereas in science, whenever they talk about a pandemic, a viral respiratory disease pandemic, they've always said there's going to be five to 50 times more death when this thing hits, when a pandemic hits, because we have no intrinsic immunity to it. Well, you have to look for those deaths. We're not finding them except in jurisdictions that have the kinds of populations that are fragile and susceptible to bacterial pneumonia, and you don't treat them as you should with, with antibiotics. Combine that, and you've got a lot of deaths. And the other last interesting feature I might add is ivermectin. We showed that there's a scientific paper that proves that ivermectin is very effective at combating uh, vicious bacterial pneumonia. So it is possible that many MDs who swear by ivermectin were act and who were told that they should not be prescribing antibiotics because this is a viral respiratory disease and it's not, you know, it wouldn't be right for you to prescribe antibiotics. They were told this explicitly. Uh, they may have been saving their patients from dying from a bacterial pneumonia. That's what we suggested in our paper. Fascinating so stuff. There There's a lot to dig in here. Um, do you know of any other epidemiologists or researchers who are working along these lines particularly of examining the all-cause mortality? Yeah, there are about three or there are about three or four other groups um, who are looking at all-cause mortality. But I have to say, when I read their papers, um, they kind of tippy toe. You know, they don't dare go straight up against the narrative. And uh, they write their papers in a very wishy-washy way, and they, um, they simply don't look at some features of the data. So there are groups looking at it, and those groups will tell you, oh, this is really important to look at. And then when you look at what they've actually done with the data, you wonder, well, why, why did you say it was important to look at? You're not actually taking, you know, you've got this incredible data, now use it. <laughs> um, so I've been a little bit, but we, we, we certainly cite all the uh, published papers that, that uh, study all-cause mortality in, in our papers, yes. And have you had any feedback from the scientific community in, a, in, a, in, a, in an important way? Any, any sort of responses to your papers or, or criticism or anything of that sort? Well, there is a group of scientists that are top-level scientists that are absolutely wonderful and that those are, they are the doctors for COVID ethics. And I'm a, I'm a member of that group and they are fantastic. Uh, I guess the, 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 the father figure in the group is, is uh, uh, Professor Bhakti um, and Shukarit Bhakti. And uh, there are many extraordinary researchers and MDs that are part of that group. And they have adopted me and my work uh, with open arms, and they have basically been putting all of our studies on, all of my studies and our studies on their website, and promoting them, and saying that this is really important stuff. And they can, they see the importance of it, and they see the value of it. But that is kind of the exception that proves the rule. Generally speaking, even the famous virologists that are saying really important things, and that are, uh, you know, uh, very critical of, of the COVID narrative, haven't looked at the all-cause data and don't recognize that there's something important going on here that they should be talking about, that they, they should actually be looking at. So it's, it's a little bit frustrating for me to see how they stay in their narrow discipline and, and do not dare to step out or, or read other things. 
All right, finally, well, hopefully, hopefully we will be able to direct at least some of my audience towards these papers that you've written. Once again, I will exhort you to look at these papers. If you care at all about this topic, if you want to know more about the topic, actually read the papers. There is a lot of information. We can only begin to scratch the surface in an hour-long, hour-plus-long conversation like this, as crazy as that might sound. There's a lot to, uh, to chew on here. But I want to draw, at the very, very end here, I want to draw back to the same ultimate conclusion, or, or not conclusion, but at least the, the final point that I made in my previous questions for Corbett on this su subject, which is, let me pose the question to you, Denny. Uh, let's imagine that there was, there, this is a viral respiratory disease pandemic, and it is absolutely, one million deaths in the U.S. and however many elsewhere can absolutely be attributed to that. That therefore means that lockdowns and masks and vaccines are completely, and vaccine mandates are completely justified, right? Well, you know, it's it's a myth to think that the U.S. did not do a lot of mask wearing and and a lot of lockdowns. Uh, they did. Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, we're looking at we're comparing jurisdiction to jurisdiction. All, all the people who have studied the lockdowns and the measures and tried to find a correlation with less deaths, but they're using COVID deaths as opposed to all cause mortality most of the time. Um, have not found a useful, uh, any use, any benefit from these things. And my criticism has been, what do you mean you haven't found any benefit? There's harm. Please read our paper. There's tremendous harm from these measures. It, you cannot understand it any other way. It's not a, it's not a zero sum. It's not that it, it didn't have an effect. It had a negative effect. So I'm not sure I answered your question. Well, um, uh, you, you answered it perfectly from the scientific perspective. As a scientist, I will speak as a non-scientist, as someone who cares about the philosophy undergirding the question, how many people died, as if the answer to that question can then determine whether you have the right to abrogate my fundamental human rights and my bodily autonomy. My answer is you do not. No matter what the answer to this question is, you and no one else has the right to fund fundamentally abrogate my bodily autonomy. That's my line in the sand. So I, I just put that out there because I know that's the reason a lot of people bring up this question. Right. No, I totally agree. You cannot, you cannot use models and ideologies and interpretations to justify forcibly or coercing people to be injected with a pharma product that we don't even get to see the data of, 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 of the studies on its uh, safety and efficacy. And when you do see the, the, the poor studies that they publish, you realize that it's, it's, it's garbage science. Uh, no, there's no way they should be allowed to coerce people into taking this injection, irrespective of anything else, irrespective of, as you say, right? Even, even if there was this terrible pandemic, if people want to risk it and not be injected with it and not, not receive a medical treatment, that is their choice. I totally agree with you. All right. Well, I just want to put that as the bottom line for this, because as I say, I think there's a reason people ask this question and because they're looking for a certain answer to justify whatever it is they want to believe. But at any rate, we have covered a lot of ground here today. And as I say, we've only scratched the surface. So people, please follow the show notes to the links to the actual articles themselves. And on that note, Denis Rancourt, how can people follow your work? How can people support your work? 
Uh, they can follow my work uh, at denirancourt.ca. One word. All all of my all all my research is there by section. There's COVID, geopolitics, uh, climate science. You name it. It's all there. And the way they can support me is to study my work, read read my papers, and see if you agree and see see what you think about it. That's that's the best way to support me because I don't I don't need other support than that. I just want to have a conversation with as many people as possible on these questions. It's about the data and it's about getting the conversation started and getting people thinking along these lines. So my, I salute you for that. And uh, I at least hope this conversation will get a few more eyeballs on these papers. Having said that, Denis Rancourt, thank you very much for this work. And I hope for, uh, we can talk again in the near future. It was my pleasure, James. Thanks for the invitation.